With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. everyone, John Wertheim here is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. We have a special guest this week, Felix OJ Aliasim, now up to number 33 in the world. He's only 18 years old, and uh, he, in many ways, has been one of the big tennis stories so far of uh, 2019. Very nice conversation with uh, a kid who plays tennis at an extraordinarily high level, but also, man, what a head he has on his shoulders. Um, a lot to, uh, to like about Felix. FAA, he uh, tells us he likes to be addressed. And so without further ado, let's bring him in. How are you? Good. Great. Thank you. Where are you? I'm in Montreal, actually. Um, just uh, I came back two days ago and uh, yeah, I just got back to the National Center. I bet you're spending a lot less time in Montreal this year than you anticipated. Yeah, it's just my first week this year, actually, <laughs> in Montreal. In a good way. That's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. All right, important question before we start. Felix, mm-hmm. Felix FAA, FA2, I feel like everyone takes liberties with your uh, with your nickname. How, how do you want to be yeah, identified? I think, I think FAA is pretty international, but uh, I think it's also it's also what I find, you know, so I think uh, I think it's easy to remember, so I, I usually go with, uh, with FAA as a nickname. All right, FAA it is. Um, so we are one quarter into the year. And you are yep. now. Do, do you know your ranking? I'm just curious. Do you, do you know what you're ranked today? Uh, Thirty-three. Very 33 good. Thirty-three this week. Do you know how many Instagram followers you have? I think I'm almost at a hundred thousand. Oh, very good. You know your ranking, and your uh, these are like the twin signposts for uh, yeah for tennis players. Very good. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been quite a year so far. What, what's your yeah. what's your level of surprise? Uh, obviously, it's uh, it's there. I'm surprised, but um. At the same time, you know, it's it's what uh, it's what I worked for. It's what everyone works for. I think um, I obviously didn't. The biggest surprise is how fast it happened. I think uh, uh, weeks after weeks, I was able to produce, you know, a very high level uh, of uh, of tennis. And obviously, staying healthy was a huge key. But uh, I think that's the main surprise: how fast it went. Because uh, obviously, I obviously expect you know a lot of things from myself over the year, over the, the next few years. But uh, being able Three months in the season to be 33 in the world is just uh, amazing. Are you are you a basketball fan? Yeah, I follow, especially now the playoffs coming up. I'm uh, I think obviously I'm going to follow, especially the Raptors. Obviously, it's not my it's not my home city, but uh, I'll support them. It's Canada. No, I, I ask you because uh, Steve Kerr, the co- coach of the Warriors, um, yeah, he, he has this thing. He, he calls it the fun factor, and he, he says it's it's a big difference with elite performers when they feel like they're working a job versus they, they feel like they're still enjoying what they began to play because they loved it. What, what's your, what's your fun factor with tennis right now? I mean, I, I can completely agree with, uh, with Steve Kerr. I think all the greatest, all the, 
all the great athletes in any sport, you know, they've they've had that factor because uh, um, you train so many hours, you spend so many hours either in the gym, on the court, uh, traveling. So if I mean, if you don't if you don't like it or if you're not passionate about it, there's uh there's uh it's tough to be it's tough to be good and it's tough to to have a longevity. So for me, it's a it's a it's a huge factor, and uh, I'm happy because it's so natural for me to to like what I'm doing and just to still enjoy playing. Uh, you know, I can go out with a friend tomorrow and play a game of tennis and, and just enjoy it. So uh, I think that's uh, it's fun that it's staying that way. You, you see Roger or, or even Milos, and you, you see yourself doing this for the next uh, t- 10, 15, even 20 years. Oh, for sure. I think I'm going to do it as long as I, I can do it, as long as uh, uh, the family is able to support and um i think uh, i'm gonna play as long as i get i can as long as i'm healthy what's it like for you these these last few weeks especially walking into the locker room how, how do you feel you're being perceived by your by your colleagues i think uh obviously i think uh, you establish a bit of a uh, respect towards your peers um i think now you know that you're in the top 50 with the results that i've had in the last couple of weeks you know i think the they expect obviously good results from you, and every time you get to to play them, uh, you know they they obviously think you're going to play well, or they expect you to play well. And I think, in a way, I can use that to my uh, advantage because uh, even if you know I'm not feeling great or not, I don't feel like I'm playing my greatest greatest tennis, uh, it's obviously a card that I can play. You know, the card where maybe you maybe bluff a little bit and you know play on the psychology. You know, we've seen it before, so. I think that's obviously an an, as, an aspect that I can uh, I can uh, count on. Tell me about your piano skills. This was uh, this was big talk on on Twitter yesterday. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, obviously I think for the for the fans and you know for the people that follow me, it's cool to see you know someone do uh, something else than than just tennis or uh, his regular job, I guess. And uh, it's a, it's a big passion of mine. You know, I've always played. Uh, I started at seven years old. So, um, yeah, today just getting back to uh, to my parents' house in in Montreal and just playing a little bit was uh, was fun. And I obviously like to to share it sometimes. Uh, I'm not a big performer. You know, I don't like to to perform, uh, but uh, I always like to play. That's something I do as a hobby. I would say you uh, you do pretty well performing. Maybe yeah, just not okay. uh, piano. Um, if, I'm glad. If if you were right, I mean, is it is there a connection between the piano and tennis? Is is this something you you would draw parallels to? Um, yeah, in a way, I think you can you can obviously draw draw a parallel because uh, you know it's uh, in tennis. Obviously, you you practice a lot, like in piano, and then you play you play your partition, and then you just uh, you just go with the flow. You know, it's a bit like uh, like piano. You you struck. I mean. In both both ways, I really uh, trust my my instinct. Sorry, uh, that's the that's the way I go about about life in general, and obviously about tennis and piano, you can see that similarity. So, and I think at the same time, it obviously helps my my head just to get out of the sport sometimes and do something else. So, I think all the this whole combination obviously is helping me in in my career. That's a really interesting answer. How, how do you trust your instinct when you play? What do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, I think it goes so fast and, uh, you know, you don't really have time to think. And for me, when I start thinking, it's not a good sign because it just means that I'm not natural anymore and I, I don't really trust uh, the work that I've done before. 
So for me, it's just, uh, you know, you go to practice, you repeat the good habits, you, you work hard, you work well. And then once the game starts, you know, it's really about just uh, trusting your instinct and then adjusting during the match and see what, what you can do to 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 win the match. But uh, at the end of the day, the the match is just um, it's just what you've done before in practice. It's not, there's no way around it. I noticed you were you wearing glasses in, in that in the piano video. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I have a I have a bad vision from far. Uh, how do you say myopia? Yeah, right, right. So you're yeah, you're so, nearsighted. Yeah, exactly. So I have to wear um, contacts when I play. You wear daily. You just wear daily lenses. Yeah, I just uh, wear daily lens. Yeah. So we are now in April. Describe your relationship with Clay. Like good. I mean, great. You guys get along, uh, okay? Think, uh, yeah, I mean, I grew up playing on hard, but at the same time, uh, from early in um, in junior tournaments, uh, I actually trained a lot on clay, played a lot of tournaments on clay, and I think now I'm at a place where I feel I can just, you know, play well on on any surface, and I think obviously I can take that as a as an advantage for myself and uh, and just you know. Keep on, on striving uh, on clay and, and see how far I can go, you know, in this clay season. But I think um, my expectations are, are higher than uh, than ever before uh, for this upcoming clay season. So I, I got two theories I want to bounce off you. And, and tell me if this is uh, an adult just talking nonsense or if you agree. But uh, one of them is that you, Dennis, and now Bianca, it's a blessing that three of you are coming along at once. So you yeah. guys can can share some of the uh, some of the hype and publicity and expectation. Agree or disagree? Uh, I agree. Thanks. I agree, obviously, because um, I think uh, you know for us there's like there's a lot of belief uh, around the tennis right now and around Canadian tennis, and to see Bianca like to see what she has done, even though it's on the woman's side. Um, it's just uh, it's really inspiring, and uh, obviously Dennis for the for the last couple of months and years, what he what he's done, you know, it gives me uh, it gives me myself a lot of belief. So, uh, and I think in a way, without really thinking about it, I think we're both you know we're all pushing each other to to the to the highest levels, and um, I'm glad that uh, I can be a part of it because it's really something special that's happening right now. So, so the other theory, when people talk about what's going on in Canada, it's, it's been pointed out that one thing the three of you have in common is that you are children of immigrants. B- Bianca yeah. from, from Romanian parents, Dennis from parents that left Russia uh-huh. and then Israel, and, then, and you have you know, your father from, from Togo. Yeah. Is, is your background, I mean, do you, do you buy that? Is there, is there something in the, the immigrant background that you think impacts you, or is this just journalists fishing for, uh, for a storyline? No, I think it's I think it's obviously a thing if you look at... Uh... Even Milos, you know, parents come uh, from Montenegro, and I think uh, in a way, it's um, I think it goes back to our education. I think I can talk for myself and say that, you know, when when you see just you know your dad uh, sacrificing a lot, you know, uh, I think him uh, just not directly just puts into his education, you know, this discipline and this respect and you know this uh, this work ethic that. I think um, a lot of, uh, of immigrants uh, uh, have, and it's not the, the, the main factor. But I think uh, it's not uh, it's not just uh, 
something you know it's it is it is sorry it is it is something and i think uh uh just uh yeah like i said just to see see what my dad had had to go through obviously gives me a lot of strength and if i can give back you know to, to this uh my community in togo that would be that would be great as well I feel like we we had uh, Sitsipans on last year uh, when he was sort of having his breakthrough. And the one thing yeah. I, I said to him was sort of you walk into the press conference and the adults all say, you know, what are your goals for the year? And they sort of ask yeah. the boring question. I said, listen, just you, you've got a blank slate. What what do you want people to know about you? And I'll ask you the same thing. I mean, what what do you want people to know? What what should people what, what do you want to promote? What 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 should people know about you? Um. You know, I think I just want to be uh, a good example, you know, for the kids to come. I think my my mantra or, like, my motto, you know, is just uh, I want to be in a position where, you know, I can give back and to help kids, you know, get to where I am today. And if these kids, you know, have a good example in front of them, then they'll want to help another kid and they'll want to help someone else. And I think that would just be, you know, the perfect cycle where, like, if everyone helps, you know, the person next to, next to, next to them, then, you know, we're all pushing each other in the, in the right direction. And I think that's how I kind of look at, uh, look at life. And, um, I think that's what I would want the people to, to, to know about me and to, to, uh, to, to, to see, uh, when they think of me. So, uh, but again, I think that's all going to happen, uh, with my actions and what I do, you know, on the court and off the court. And I think I'm just starting now at the start of my career, but uh, it's obviously going to become uh, uh, an objective in the near in the years to come. Tennis is is an individual sport, but what I'm hearing you describe sounds very, very communal, very very team like. Yeah, it's very team, and I think uh, obviously for my part, every time I I step on court, I obviously represent uh, a whole team behind me. There's uh, there's there's a lot of people working with me every day, uh, also sacrificing a lot. Uh, are doing a lot of work, so I think every time I step on court, I'm not only playing for me, but I'm playing, you know, for my mom and dad, for my coaches, for my physio, for my agent, and I think all these uh, all these people that that help me do what I do every day are um, are of uh, the biggest importance for me. You think you're done growing? I hope so. I think I'm at a good <laughs> size now. <laughs> I, I was going to say. I mean, do you, do you feel like uh, you you know your body? I mean, your your conversation with your body is is pretty pretty fluid yeah i think it's pretty fluid i had some some uh, issues with my knee at the, uh, at the end of last year uh because of obviously growing pains but um i think now now it just feels better and uh obviously that can all you know stabilize in the, in the years to come and i think now i'm at a i'm at peace and uh, i'm at a good place uh body body wise I, I should have looked this up, but did did you play the juniors at, at Roland Garros last year? Uh, not last year. I played in 2016. Actually, I made uh, made finals. I lost in finals in 2016. I, I think we we talked about this in Indian Wells, and I think you very wisely said you're you're not paying attention to all the points and all the the numbers, but you're going to be seated most likely going into the French Open. What what is that like? Yeah, playing right. your, your first major. Uh, you know, it's your First, yeah, uh, like, first major is a seed. Yeah, I'm one one position shy from being from being seated. Uh, obviously, it's um it's a big achievement for uh, for anyone, for myself, and uh, I think it can also obviously 
help uh, the draw if you have a bit of luck and you have a, a better draw, it's better to, to play, you know, um, a highly seeded uh, uh, player in the first round. So, yeah, if I can be seeded, that uh, that obviously would uh, would help me. And uh, obviously I can play well in the tournaments to come to give myself that chance. Great. And I saw you, saw you got a wild card into Madrid. So uh, yeah. you're guaranteed some European uh, some, some match play in advance. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm guaranteed to be in the main draw of the tournaments to come. And uh, that's obviously a, a good thing because, you know, the, the qualities are obviously tough and physically they're draining. So if I can, you know, have the opportunity now with my ranking to, to be in the main draw of all these tournaments, it's, uh, it's obviously a huge help. You're taking the week off, though, I hope. Yeah, taking a, a bit of time off. Yeah, home it feels good. And what, what, what does that What does that mean when you take a week off? Is that sort of family time? Is that put the rackets down, or is that just light hitting? Uh, yeah, it's not like I don't take the rackets down for a long time. I'm actually starting again today, but uh, it's really just uh, for twenty thirty minutes uh, the first few days, just to keep touch, you know, with the with the racket because you know you don't want to during during the season you don't want to spend too much time. Uh, of the court, just uh, you know, even for your for your wrist, for your elbow, for your shoulder, it's it's good to to keep the touch with uh, with the ball. And um, no, for me, time off just obviously means uh, having no tournament and just being back home with my family. That just means a means a lot to me. So it's it's important to still have these moments and that and that uh, busy schedule. I want you to get back to your family, get back to the piano, and uh, you, you. You've, you've earned this. Uh, a week off. Yeah. I don't want to keep you Thank anymore. You. Um, yeah. I, I feel like shaking your hand, but I feel like shaking your parents' hand as well. So uh, congrats. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, appreciated. Thank this, you. This was a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Thank Felix. you. Have a good day. You too. All right. Thanks to Felix for uh, spending some time with us, especially on this, a rare week off for uh, for the kid. Again, up to number 33, and he does not turn 19 until August. Uh, wow. Jamie Lasanti, you, uh, you listened to that. What'd you, what'd you think of our new rising star in tennis? I was sitting there. I said, mm-hmm. what a good head on his shoulders. Oh, yeah. He's very well spoken and not only about his tennis and his career, but about, you, you asked him about Dennis and, you know, the other teenagers kind of coming up and in, in this time right now, I thought he was great. We, uh, there's, there's a lot of fretting behind the scenes. What's tennis going to look like when... Federer, Nadal, Serena, when, when we have these these majors without these great titans of the sport. Um, if this is next gen, if uh, if this is an example of what we have to look forward to, I think tennis is going to be okay. Um, you know, it's, it's always hard, I feel like, when you have a prospect like this burst on the scene. On the one hand, there's a lot to be excited about. This is, again, this is a teenager. This is someone who doesn't turn 19 for six more months, who's playing extraordinarily well. He's winning big matches. He's playing on different surfaces. You see a glimpse of the personality. I mean, honestly, that's those are Roger Federer-type remarks at that age. Right. There's real perspective there. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, I mean, I wish I had that sort of self-possession. Yeah, he has the ability to take a step back at this point. You know, even the fact that he's saying, I'm taking a week off, and I'm not taking a week off to go do whatever, but he's, right. he's saying, family is important to me. I'm going to go chill out, heal my body hang out with my family and heal my mind probably in the process. I mean, that alone is very mature. What about just something as simple as uh, we had an appointed time, we called it the appointed time, and he picked up the phone. That does not always happen with uh, athletes and celebrities. It's very true. You know, we, we always used to say when, when something like this happened, sort of the, the cynical response was, boy, let's 
Let, let's hope he stays like this. Right. I think, and again, I, I give Federer and Nadal a lot of credit here. They are not alone in this, but Roger Federer was a lot like this when I started covering the sport in, you know, in 2000, 2001, 2002. Very similar vibe. Roger Federer never really changed. Um, obviously, his, his world got bigger and the demands put upon him got bigger, but essentially he, he never had that flip to celebrity. Um, so who knows? But boy, uh, a lot to like about this kid. Definitely. I think the biggest question, as you say, is, of course, how he will fare in five-set matches at Grand Slams. Um, I think we haven't really seen that. I think last year's U.S. Open, he you know, kind of had an unfortunate draw and played Shapovalov in the first round. And then he retired, I think, because of the heat. Yeah, there was, well, there was a scary moment. Right, where, with his heart palpitations right, and all of that. So, right. you know, you hope that he's gotten to know his body a little bit better and been able to add some training to prevent that. I think, as you say, he'll probably be seated in the rest of the majors for the year, or at least for the next one. So it would be interesting to see him in the main draw at that level in the main draw and to see how he fares hopefully he'll you know the draw will shake out for him a little bit better but you know i think we got some, some I think, go- uh, good things to look forward exactly. to exactly uh they are doing something right north of the border they um, are. this is a uh this is a new tennis hotbed but no I, I mean i do think a lot like bianca andrescu defending virtually nothing in terms of points so right. both of them i can't imagine they wouldn't be seated just because the way the rankings work they're basically playing with house money for the rest of the year. Um, what was going on in the I year know. 2000 we were saying, in, uh, in Canada? And Grant Wall, who was uh, in here before us, apparently there's, and I'm blanking, this is my soccer, uh, this is my great blind spot, but there's there's an 18-year-old Canadian soccer player whose name I'm uh Something in the find. water up there, huh? Oh, um, who do we have here? We have Alfonso Davies, born November 2nd, 2000, uh, who... Um, there's, all, a, there's a about? good story cooking. Well, under here. R, you know, RJ, RJ Barrett for Duke is also right, an 18, right, 18 right. Year old. Also born to, uh, to Jamaican extraction. Also born to, to uh, an, another Canadian on that immigrant theme that uh, Felix accepted and didn't reject. Yeah, I love it. I think that was a really good answer. Yeah, it was. I agree. I uh, I thought that um, you know he's aware of everything and he, as I said earlier, is very connected to his family, which I think, as you say, will help him in the long run in terms of his career and just keeping with his personality. And I also think it's it's clearly a tight-knit family, but it also, he has a coach, he has an agent. This is not uh, a family affair. Um, so I have a confession to make, Jamie. What's your confession? Last week was spring break, and uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I have a senior in high school, which means this might be the last spring break uh, with the lame parents. So uh, we took advantage of that. My wife and I did. We were away. Unfortunately, that meant that I did not make it to the Miami Open. Um, so in, in full transparency, I you followed as best much. I could. I, I watched a little bit when I could, and I followed right. on social media, but I, I was not there. So I followed this from afar, as, as you did as well. Um so why don't we we're, we're going to bring in uh, Andrea Leand, who is a, a longtime uh, former top 15 player, longtime tennis observer, very plugged in. And she was there. So I, I thought it was important to get people uh, sort of some some on the ground perspective, especially this in their first year in, in the new stadium. But uh, what what struck you from afar about the Miami Open? I mean, Ash Barty, I didn't I don't know if I didn't realize or she's only 22 years old. 
That's with a uh, with the cricket sabbatical. Right. And so I think maybe that's why I thought that maybe she was not not so much older, but maybe, uh, you know, two or three years older. But I thought um, when I when I saw that and realized that really incredible, really happy for her. Um, also remarkable that she was in the doubles final with Azarenka. So, you know, she's still she's still doing everything and you gotta love her game slices drop shots it slices and drop shots but also she can she can hit with power i mean she's not a big gunner she's probably five 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 six but she she can hit the ball too um she is the 14th player to win a title this year on the women's side there have only been 14 events if my math is right my long division (laughs) is right that means that every tournament was won by a different player i'll tell you something else they also have had 13 different runners up so uh, this is not a great concentration. This is uh, this is variety. This is parody. Good or bad? I say sport. good. I mean, the interesting thing too about these four, we all have been talking all week about fourteen tournaments, fourteen different winners. The other thing too, Serena, Venus, Maria, Wozniacki, absent Muguruza. I mean, go down the list. Kerber, Halep. Those are Savitolina. Those are not the players who have won these events. Right. So I think it's great, and I think that um, I think the variety of the player, um, you know. Julia Gurgis, a 30-year-old German lefty, plays nothing like Bianca Andreescu, who plays nothing like Barty, who plays nothing like Naomi Osaka, who won the Australian Open. So I think uh, I think this parody is great, and I also think that it matches up and pairs quite nicely with the situation on the men's game, which is, as always, the big three and the Titans and Federer Nadal Djokovic and only table scraps for uh, for everyone else. What, what do you think? Do you, uh, from, from where you sit, in position of fandom do you you mind 14 different winners in 14 events good or bad i think i think for the sport generally as a you know larger picture probably not the best because i think if you're a casual fan you see you know a new winner every week or every few weeks you know you maybe you want to lock on to that one rising star who's who's won three tournaments already this year something like that so maybe not the best for that but i i can agree with you to say that in terms of different game styles and people coming up, definitely good for the sport. But it is interesting how much it contrasts. You know, I mean, you I did not see um, Federer, Isner, but Federer was so close to winning Indian Wells yeah, right, as well. Right, so, right. I mean, you can't even say at this point that there's this new, new, new guard or, you know, something else coming up. Federer is good as ever heading into this summer of majors and you got to like his chances this summer and he's playing clay which he hasn't done uh in yes. three years now um no i mean i think the the other storyline is this strange sudden fall off of djokovic who wins the australian open that makes three straight majors it looks like he's just at a c- completely different elevation than everyone else and then he has two very shaky tournaments these were sort of 2017 djokovic Losing to players outside the the top twenty, looking agitated. This was not uh, vintage Djokovic in either case, and now he's won the last three majors. And it's, it's actually it's it's not altogether different from Naomi Osaka, who again she, Naomi Osaka goes to Roland Garros trying to win her third straight major, right? But she had a very quiet March as well. Do you think it's just he's done so much and he had to do so much to get there from, you know, his big fall off? That is sort of just like settling in at this point. Yeah, I th- I think these this ATP politics has probably exacted a price both in terms of time and sort of mental energy. 
this is somebody who likes to be liked, and he took some some shots both sort of in public, you but also behind closed doors. I, I think that's probably weighed on him quite a bit on the court. Yeah, interesting. Um, but uh, let's go to someone who was on the ground in Miami. I mean, again, from my perspective, it seemed like a success. I mean, first of all, I think just big picture, we can all agree at least here in uh, the U.S. xenophobically, we can all agree that uh, moving to a new football stadium. 20 miles north of downtown Miami, very much preferable. Again, I say this from an American perspective, but preferable to seeing this event go offshore, going to Dubai or Abu Dhabi, which apparently was on the table when IMG was really considering selling this event. So big picture, I think everyone should be thrilled in the United States, at least, that this event stayed where it is. You move this from Key Biscayne, which is essentially an island on the other side of a causeway from downtown Miami, to a football stadium, an NFL stadium north of town. I think overall, this was an awfully strong first year. You heard some complaints. Some of the players said looks sort of visually, um, almost as a as an experience, both seeing the ball but also hearing the ball. It was an adjustment right. when you're playing in a football stadium. Right. That's uh, that's a lot different from playing in, in Crandon Park on, on Key Biscayne. But, um, you know, th- there were some press room gripes. There were the usual, we were told to go this way, we went that way. People were bitching about the price of parking, which... <laughs> you know, I, I don't. None of us like being gouged for parking, but in the grand scheme of things, if the biggest gripe is uh, I had to pay forty bucks to park my car, um, that's probably revealing in and of itself. I think you know, biggest thing, great storylines to come out of the tournament. I think overall, as you say, it went along without any hiccups, and as expected. I mean, it's a it's a it's a great tournament, especially in comparison to Indian Wells, and I think those two tournaments now will kind of continue to push each other. Um, the rivalry's back on. I was happy to hear in in the world of hip injuries, I was happy to see Bob and Mike Bryan yeah, right, right, uh, right. come back and, and win the title after Bob had the hip surgery. And then just today, Andy Murray's back on the court hitting saw balls. That. Saw that so video. happy to see hips are doing well mm. in tennis. And uh, yeah. Hip, hip injuries are... Uh, Nothing to be taken, but you know, Bob has the the titanium. I mean, Bob Bob has the right. the replacement hip. Um, no, I I think that's an interesting point. Federer, Federer at age thirty seven and the Bryan brothers, who are almost forty one, winning titles says something. Um, when they do the Andy Murray documentary, the twenty nineteen Australian Open chapter is going to be very strange. I think <laughs> uh, that did not look like someone who was retiring. But um, anyway, it was great to see Andy Murray back to hitting balls. I don't know if you saw as well. He tweeted something out that one day he's he's pondering running uh, a marathon one of these days. Um, don't often see that for uh, might not someone. be that might might not be a good idea for the hips. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. But uh, <laughs> I was happy to see him in the headspace where he, that's even a possibility. It's very um, true. But uh, no, overall, I think uh, tip of the cap to our friend James Blake. Um, again, the tournament director necessarily takes a lot of slings and arrows, but if again, if uh, if the biggest objections and the biggest gripes are about the price of parking and the security guard didn't know where my suite was, which is the kind of level stuff I was hearing, we're doing okay. It's set attendance records. It's only going to grow next year. I think exactly. the players, uh, players liked some of the amenities. It was a little bit far from downtown Miami from where they're probably accustomed to staying. You know what? Boo-hoo. An extra 10 minutes in an Uber. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, you know what people are going to remember? They're going to remember Roger Federer winning a title. They're going to remember Ash Barty with 10 terrific days of tennis. The price of parking will not be the uh, enduring legacy of the 2019 Miami Open. Yeah, it's it's fine. So good for the Miami Open. All right. But but you know who was there on the ground? Our friend Andrea Leand, who yeah. uh, 
Let's bring her on because uh, she will give us insider perspective and not uh, the TV perspective you and I had. Hey, Andrea, how are you? Hi, John. How are you? I'm good, thanks, but I am back after vacation. And full disclosure, I was not in Miami, but you were, and we always like uh, hearing your impressions. So I figured uh, we did this, I think, last year with Fed Cup, and you were great, and I figured we would try this again. I'm just sort of curious, blank canvas. Give give me some impressions of the event, the venue, what you saw, what you observed. Uh, give, give us your Miami take. Oh, I thought it was great. I just got home from the Miami Open. The first year at the Miami Dolphins Stadium, the Stephen Ross team did a remarkable job. James Blake, of course, the tournament director, fielding all the requests and really uh, knocking himself out for the players. And I think they loved it, John. The vast space was the biggest difference. The players had a place to go. Their teams had a place to go. They had gyms. They had a soccer field to do their calisthenics. They had their own suites, their own dining even the ball boys, John, had their own club-level suites. And so the ball boys were loving it. They had their ping-pong tables. And you could literally go around. Cause, you know, you've been in all these NFL stadiums. And you, you know the club level. And you could literally go around the circle. And the ball boys had their own area. The linesmen. So everyone was happy, most of all the fans. They had an incredible time. 15 record-breaking sessions at the Miami Open, including the men's final, which was up Another record-breaking session for them with Federer and Isner. So lots to be proud about for this first year. Because, you know, a lot of people forget Akiba Skane, as you know, when you were there. It was the, the crowds were waning. It was an antiquated facility. The push was to go to something new, to upgrade this incredible event in the United States, to keep it in the United States, to keep it in Miami. And I think they achieved all that. When you say record-breaking, you mean attendance, right? Attendance, yes, the fans loved it. You know, of course, they got a grounds pass that allowed them onto the grandstand and to the Butch Buckholt Stadium, which I'm so happy they, you know, remembered the founder of this event, the genius that went behind this whole concept to bring it to Miami. Um, so they just loved it because, as you know, when you have both the men and women there, the top stars, you can go to those outer courts and you can see them practice. You can see their matches with the grounds pass. So that was just packed. I mean, the first seven days, it was packed, and of course they had the food courts and all the uh, food trucks, and the foodies loved it, and all the other entertainment, and they had an art museum with uh, you know all kinds of terrific, fun artwork there. So every something for everyone, I think you could say, and a real taste of Miami. You sound wildly positive. Um, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll balance that a little. I mean, what I heard, and I, I think I think James said this uh, on the podcast, and I think it's a really good analogy that he said, you know, it's it's a little like moving into a new home, and you're happy you did it. And in retrospect, it's an upgrade, but there were a couple of, I think hiccups was his word. But um, it, it sounds like it was a great first year, but there's some room for improvement. But I want to go back to the size because uh, it is not often we see tennis played in, uh, I don't know what the attend- the capacity, a 65,000-seat NFL stadium. What What was that like? Well, it's a stadium within a stadium. And, of course, we've all been to... Europe, where you have, you go to the Rome Coliseum and you have the statues and the bust, and you have that worldly, cultured, intimate settings in Europe. And so you come now to the United States, and the experience in sporting events is always now transferred into really big stadiums, big technology, big suites, VIP treatment, food courts, all this sort of thing for the American audience. And so you saw they tr- they tried to build a stadium within a stadium. I think, as you said, they're going to make some changes next year. I think they're going to try and make it as intimate as possible to mesh 
the traditional tennis uh, intimate setting with what we now have as an NFL stadium. And I think they're doing a good job at that. Uh, I think they're probably going to partition off a little bit more because the TV cameras really didn't show how packed that stadium was. I right, think some of the right. angles were not always reflective. But, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things you have to get used to. I mean, I saw Jerry Seinfeld come in, and he was courtside. He literally probably could have touched the court. And so you do have those people in the corporate um, VIP section down below who don't always come every day. And then, of course, you have the top tiers that are absolutely packed and, you know, the lower uh, price seats. So it's one of those balances you have to continue to find. I think actually, John, with all venues right now in tennis, you know, it's that balance you have to find in as far as trying to, you know, obviously you have the pricey seats for the corporate world that don't come every day, but you also want people there watching the tennis. I, I feel like this is something that all sports, but tennis in particular, really has to address. As the in-stadium experience becomes less and less important and everything is moving to, to media rights, it is such a bad look when you see it on TV and you walk past in, in an airport bar and you see these oceans of empty seats right behind the baseline. And then people on site yeah. say, oh, my God, it was this happens at the U.S. Open. It happens I mean, the French Open is probably the worst culprit where the grounds at Roland Garros are absolutely packed and people are standing on shoulders to watch doubles matches. <laughs> and then they show the big stadium court and it looks like it's a third full. And everybody says, oh, boy, the, the French Open must have been a lousy tournament this year. Nobody was in the stands. And you want to say, are you kidding? I had to, you know, you wait 40 minutes for a urinal because the grounds are so packed, but t <laughs> TV doesn't capture that. And I think that was a bit, I mean, James talked about that too, where he said he, he was getting texts and friends were saying, uh, boy, it looks like attendance is really down. And he says, are you, are you kidding me? This is, uh, you know, we're exceeding expectation and this is a new record for a session at, at the Miami Open. And his friends were seeing empty seats at a football stadium on TV and not seeing a packed food court or packed grandstand courts. I mean, I, I think it's something tennis really needs to figure out a solution to. Well, I agree with you, and I think also they're going to make some changes next year. They're going to tweak the content. I think we're going to see more draws, more different events. Wouldn't it be nice when Hotman Cup was just uh, taken out now by Perth? It's no longer existing, and the ITF's going to look for a new home for it. They're going to bring, I think, mixed doubles into the Miami Open. I would not be surprised really? if they brought oh, mixed great. doubles in. Yeah. Yeah, I really think that the men and women. No, we, we talked about that with play. Miami. Yeah, exactly. We talked about it with Indian Wells and said, boy, you know, you've got men and women. You want to have slam status. Here, here's an easy solution. Have one set mixed doubles matches. You, you, so you, you heard that that might happen at the Miami Open. Yeah, I heard that might happen. I think they're going to probably bring in the Legends event. Of course, you know, to bring in, you know, whether it's Andy Roddick and maybe even James, but also the women, too. I mean, there's such an uh, audience for that. How about collegiate tennis? That's building. That's growing. As we see Oracle doing so well now in this country and really giving a priority to collegiate tennis and maybe even some juniors. I mean, why not showcase our next rising stars? So there's a lot they can tap into. I think the mixed doubles will be a primary, uh, you know, priority for next year. I think that would be a great addition, and I think the players just love it. So it'd be a nice way to also get our big stars out there because we saw actually in the doubles final, we now have singles players, our single stars, winning doubles titles with Sabalenka and Mertens. And of course, the Brian boys. Well, know, and they and they played uh, and they played Sitsipas, and Sitsipas made the uh, the men's doubles final. So um, absolutely, yeah. Let Let me ask you, what was the USTA's presence there? I mean, this is an event that's you know three three four hour drive from the training center at Lake Nona in Orlando. I think it's a great win for American tennis that this event stayed in the U.S., never mind that it stayed in Miami, that this did not go to Abu Dhabi or any of the other sites that were being rumored to uh, to want to purchase this from IMG. What was the USTA's presence on the grounds? 
Well, actually, I didn't see too many USTAs. And yeah, in all fairness, they did have their major annual meeting uh, during the tournament uh, in Texas. So it was a you know a little bit of a hop for them to get back to uh, Miami the second week. But I uh, didn't see as much. But you know, I think they have to feel proud of the fact that IMG and Stephen Ross have really combined and teamed well to make this event really flourish because this is an essential uh, cornerstone really to American tennis. You have to have tournaments in this country. As you've said, and you're selling a New Haven leaving uh, to be replaced, uh, actually soon to be announced uh, site in the United States. But we need tournaments, John, in this country. Uh, youngsters have got to see their idols, even for once. You know, you can watch Roger, Roger Federer in one match and remember it your whole life. Yep. And so yep. it's so important, even if he comes once a year <laughs> you know, to the country or four or five times a year, it's important to have these tournaments. And you know, Miami Open was absolutely essential to uh, you know the survival of that in this country is absolutely essential. I totally agree, and I think that we... I don't know if it's adults or I don't know if it's sort of the, the jaded types that cover the sport. We get caught up in attendance and venue and media rights. And I'm thinking if you're my son, you know, if you're a, a teenager and you go to the Miami Open, you're not paying attention to empty seats and camera angles. You are having a great day and you're spending, you're, you're walking around the grounds and you're finding exciting matches and you're getting some autographs and you're eating good food. And I'm thinking that that is a great exposure to tennis. I mean, that's a great day. People go to the U.S. Open who aren't hardcore fans, who aren't getting caught up in court assignments and whether Andy played too late and they're just having a, a day in the sun watching tennis and they come back and they say, this is one of the all-time great sporting days I've ever had. And I totally agree with you that we talk about how there are fewer U.S. players now, especially on the men's side, than there used to be. I think the real pivot point is that there's so fewer U.S. events. And I think that hurts the sport more than whether there's six Americans in the top 10 or, or none. But um, I, w- I want to ask you, too, though, um, this seems to be, I don't know if it's the way of the world, but certainly the way of the world in tennis in the U.S., that you have these philanthropists and or, or these, you know, these, these individuals with means who are really propping up the sport. It's Larry Ellison on the West Coast. Now it's, it's Stephen Ross on the East Coast. Mark Ein, I don't know if you saw, just took over the Washington, D.C. event. These are individuals with, with capital who have a real fondness for the sport. I mean, they're, they're not doing this as charity, but at the same time, there, there is an emotional investment. Is this how tennis tournaments, is this sort of how the business of tennis is going to start going? Oh, I think it is. Mark Ryan also has bought World Team Tennis, so he's definitely invested, was on the board at the USTA for a time. And so, yes, I think it's great that we have these philanthropists, you know, really investing in the sport. I mean, Oracle is another one. I mean, they are really supplying now the future tour, uh, which is where these, you know, youngsters now are getting their experience to then be able to go into the pro tour. So Oracle is giving them all, you know, BB and Adrescu, you know, she's one who was able to benefit from all those, uh, you know, tour events that Oracle provided so she could get her ranking up to get into the big one. So I think that, yes, I mean, all Larry Ellison, Stephen Ross, this is what we need. We need the money. It's about resources. You know, IMG had a tough time in Key Biscayne, obviously, with the owner and being able to do what they want, but also investing money to upgrading the facility and and the event. And so Stephen Ross now is providing those resources, and not only just to this year, but then to the long-term future. And he has those deep pockets that can do that, can help reinvent this event year in, year out. And that's what you need. You need a long-term resource that really can uh, provide for a future for these events. And we had that with Virginia Slims a long time ago on the women's tour. And now I think it's great to see, you know, these very wealthy people who are invested in the sport coming and helping out. 
And I, I don't think, uh, I mean, it, at some level, that's where sports ownership in general is going. This doesn't sound altogether different from a, a billionaire buying an NFL team or an NBA team. But let's let's talk about actual <laughs> tennis. Let's let's talk about uh, what you saw on the court. Um, Ash Barty was our 14th female champion in 14 events so far on the women's side. What do you make of her, and what do you make of this variety we're seeing? Well, I love this. 14 events, 14 different champions. Again, we're seeing that the veterans and the rising stars. And, of course, Barty, I adore Ash Barty. I think she's just such a terrific person. She's so balanced, but she's such a hard worker. Now, she reminds me, you know, people make comparisons to Yvonne Gulgong and Mark Record and the, you know, the past Aussie champions. But I think she reminds me a lot of Pat Rafter. She's very scrappy Oh, interesting. Time, but she's got, good she's athlete, got the good big hands. weapons. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah, Good. She, Keep going. A little Pat Rafter. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, but she has an all-court game. You know, she she got to the semis of the doubles with uh, Vika Azarenka, so she's won the title in Miami last year in the doubles with uh, Coco. So she knows she has an all-court game. She's got the slices and dices, but she can hit the ball. She had more aces than Pushkova in the final. So she has the big weapons, and I love really how her work ethic. I mean, she's sitting – she's so hard – you know, she's driven, she's, she wants it. And that's really what it comes down to, John, is who wants it more. And that's what the players are asking at the beginning of each event. Who wants it more? And who, you know, who would imagine we would be saying it would be Roger Federer, 37 years of age, and, of course, Ash Barty. But she was very clear. You know, she's, she has that Aussie kind of demeanor. You know, she's so relaxed and she's so affable. But you don't realize how hard she works behind the scenes. And she said, you know what, guys, I've been working hard for nine months to get into shape. I knew I would need my running shoes against Pliskova. I knew I would need a lot of stamina to beat Kvitova. And so she understands what it takes. You know, she took that break. She played some cricket. She doesn't want to talk about that really anymore right, because right. now she's on a different path. But uh, she's in the top ten for the first time, number nine in the world, a huge goal, personal goal for her. So I give her a lot of credit, and I think she's one of these champions that we really can wrap our arms around. Can we drill down? Can, can I press you on this idea of working hard and wanting it more. I mean, how, you know, every, every athlete says this, right? Oh, I worked hard in the off season. Oh, I've been working so hard. I mean, the first thing everybody says when they get a trophy is the, the hard work has paid off. It's so gratifying. A, what does hard work really entail? And B, how much variance is there among players? I mean, if, if Ash Barty is working 100, is the, the next set of players working 50 or is the next set of players working 96? I mean, how, how big a continuum is there in this, this hard work that you're talking about? Well, you hit the nail on the head because, as we know, we've talked about Osaka, Sloan Stevens, uh, even Serena. We're going to put her in there. And it's not they're not working as hard as Ash Barty. They know it. But they're working hard in spots, John. You know, they work hard for a couple weeks or a few weeks, and then they need a few weeks off. And the difference in why Ash Barty won this tournament is that she's been very consistent. It's day in, day out, month in, month out. And that's what you have to do if you really want to you know, achieve your goals and win the Grand Slam titles. You have to be in that type of fitness. Personally, Osaka losing to Sue Shea and, of course, Sloane Stephen going out to Maria, Tatiana Maria, uh, who's a mother on tour, uh, was very surprising because, of course, they're so talented. And we've seen them win Grand Slam titles, and we see them vie for number one. Of course, Osaka is still number one. She hung on to it, right. although Halep and Pushpa gave her a run um, and Kvitova. But... Uh, no, you know, but we see them not really working hard day in, day out. And the coaching situation reflects that. They're not really willing to commit to a coach who's going to be with them day in, day out, providing a structure and expecting them to, to practice and train. Um, of course, Osaka did uh, 
this higher um, Jenkins. But, you know, Sloan still is also stumbling as to who her coach is going to be. And Serena, of course, has Patrick. But, uh, again, she has so many, you know, wide spectrum of interests. Of course, we just were talking about just today announcing she's joining this $10 billion bid to buy networks from Walt Disney. So you can just imagine what her day is like with the business models and all the appointments and other things she has to balance. And as Billie Jean King has said, you know, she's going to have to make the sacrifices. She's going to have to say, as Osaka and Sloan will, that they're going to, you know, for this next, you know, year, they're going to have to take time and really commit to their tennis and commit to their training that they want to continue on the path of being able to win uh, Grand Slam titles. I always think of you as someone very plugged into the Williams camp. Does does she have another? <laughs> does she have another major in her? I mean, that seems to be sort of, we, we started the year and, and like, yeah, I said, oh, she, she came off of two major finals and it's only a matter of time and Serena's sort of proven the doubters wrong so many times. And I, I get the feeling that now 90 days into the year and some withdrawals, there's now a bit of a question that's seeped into the conversation of do, does she have another one in her? What do you, what do you think? Well, what's interesting is that we have 14 title holders. None of them are Serena Sloan or... Um, Oh man, uh, or, or Kerber? One, but, yeah, no, but go down Kerber the list. It's a, or, Wozniacki, <laughs> Kerber, Muguruza, Svitolina. I mean, it's, it's 14, and it's not the, the 14 uh, names you would expect. Halep, yeah. I mean, so our top 10 really hasn't won the titles. And Serena, absolutely. I'll tell you exactly what I told the camp. If she could get into shape, she's got to lose some weight. There's no question about it. And that's really what it comes down to. If she can prioritize her training, get into shape, and and be fit she can beat anyone out there john she's still head and shoulders above them all talent wise even at this at this uh stage and uh, what she is now she's still able to win matches she's still able to intimidate them because she has that much power she has that much talent but it's really up to serena and what she's going to prioritize is she going to make the sacrifices at this age in her life uh you know, she has a lot of excuses that she can make not to do it. And it's about putting those excuses aside and saying, you know what, I'm going to commit, do what Billie Jean King says, and, you know, sacrifice the next six months. We're talking about six months to achieve this goal, which is obviously to break Margaret Court's Grand Slam record and get two more uh, majors under her belt. Right. She can do it. There's no question about it. But it's about her prioritizing this and really wanting to do it and who wants it more. Can I play devil's advocate for one second? Yeah, sure. I, I find this Margaret Court record to be so fraudulent. Um, mm. You know, Mar- Margaret Court won whatever it was. Uh, t- t- I think 11 of her 24 majors were Australian Opens. This was at a time when no one else played and the draws were 32. And Australia's population was, you know, the Chicago, 10, 10 million people lived in Australia. I hope for her sake, Serena Williams gets it. I think it's great that this is what's motivating her. But I also feel like, Really? Like, it's, it's a little apples and oranges to compare the, the 1961 Australian Open with a 32 draw made up of only Australians to what Serena's having to go through to win these 128-draw, two-week, worldwide invite majors. I, I feel like it's a little bit of an artificial comparison. You want to have add that? Yeah, I mean, someone... Yeah, I agree, I agree with you. I mean, someone was saying the same thing. You know, Roger has 101 titles now with Miami and, uh, of course, trying to beat Jimmy Re- Jimmy Connors' record. Of course, they say Labor had so many titles that were never counted, you know. And so, yeah, these records do have a you know, asterisk to it. I mean, to it. But I think that, uh, 
You know, I don't. I agree with you, though, John. I don't think this is enough of a motivator for Serena at this point. These two majors. I think she has to find something that's going to motivate her more to continue to do the hard work day in, day out. And whether that's this is her platform, this is her bread and butter, this you know is her most compelling uh, stage. Um, whatever it takes, whether it's just her own personal pride and wanting to end it on a great note with a major title, um, I don't know. And maybe you know, she'll come to the uh, conclusion that it's really not motivating her and that she really does want to move on and go to the next chapter. And that, you're, as you said, you know, she felt like she is the best, uh, you know, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, just with the record she has. And, and quite frankly, uh, I, would give, I would give her a nod to that. Totally. I think she is totally. the greatest of all time. Um, yeah, I don't, but, I don't, I don't uh, think it's, uh, it's interesting. Let me no, I don't, I don't. I mean, I think the same thing. I mean, I think Serena could retire tomorrow, and I think for most of us, she's the greatest of all time. Conversation over whether she has this record or not. Um, let me ask you real quick. Last, we'll, we'll close up with we didn't haven't really talked men. Um, you know, no, Novak uh, after winning Australia has looked a little like 2017 Novak again, and then obviously Roger took the title, and I w- I would submit that at the quarter point of this year. Roger Federer is probably playing the best tennis of uh, anyone on the men's side. How, how surprised were you by the men's scene in Miami, um, maybe Roger and Novak in particular? Well, I'm just surprised how quickly the tide turns. I mean, only a few weeks ago we were discussing, is Novak going to win the Grand Slam? All four majors this year, he looked so <laughs> <could>. invincible. Right. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, then, of course, there was politics in the ATP, and he's the president of the players. And so he's got a lot on his uh, plate right now. And one thing I will say, John, about Novak is that when everything is in line and he has the perfect karma, there is no one better. He just goes right through everyone, and he can win any title. But when one little thing is out of place, when there's one little chink in the armor, he does seem very, very distracted, and it, it seems to affect everything on court. He does not. Uh, he doesn't seem able to really separate the off court from the on court, which Roger does. Roger clearly has a lot of businesses. He has a lot going on, but I think he had to, you know, really understand that if he wants to win these titles and wants to, you know, I think Indian Wells was a, a big uh, wake up call for Roger. You know, yes, he got to the finals, but you remember those two consecutive drop yeah, shots. Yeah, the drop and, shots, exactly. Course, the, yeah, I mean, you know, to team to give that match that break and the match away. Um, I think that was sitting with him, resonating with him when he got to Miami. And at this time, he was able to close against Isner and also against the younger guys. You know, I think Roger's starting to say, hey, you know, yeah, I'm 37, but I'm going to push, you know, that we have Felix and Dennis and uh, Francis TFO. Lots of young guys coming up with uh, career highs, quite frankly, today, John. I mean, Felix now, 33 yeah, in the world. Yeah. Uh, Dennis uh, Shapovalov, uh, Francis TFO, 30. So they're all making their move. Um, but, uh, yeah, now Roger, number one in the race to London, uh, is going to play the clay, no points to defend. It's going to, you know, even climb higher. Sasha Zarek, even though number three, is going to probably has lots of points to defend and has really struggled. Uh, Kyrgios is another one, wins Acapulco, and then, you know, has struggles again with his fitness and discipline, as he himself does. So it's interesting. It's a great, great, I think, time, though, to be in tennis because you see the different genera- generations really competing against themselves and fighting hard, and it will come down to who wants it more. I will put an asterisk on that statement. It is a great time to be in <laughs> tennis if, and I think most people are, but if you follow both tours. I mean, I think tennis right now, if, if you follow men and women's tennis, and I think most fans do, I think most fans should, I think tennis is at its best at these mixed events, 
If you follow boat tours, it's great. You've got everything, and you have variety, and you have the unpredictability of the women's side, and you have these pillars on the men's side, and you have teenagers, but you also have 30-somethings. I think if you only follow men's or women's, you're, you're missing out on a lot of the experience. And I think what's brewing under a lot of these tour politics is how much integration do we want. And uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I think tennis economically, but also sort of culturally and socially, is it so much of a better place when it's a two-gendered sport? That's my sermon. Oh, you're so That's right. my sermon. Yeah, that, yeah. You, you have to put your best foot forward in tennis. That's what the men and women together, that's something Novak's going to have to understand, I think. And uh, if you can get over that hump, if you really look at the successful events, I mean, we're going to go to Europe, we're going to see the men and women in Madrid and, and in Rome, of course, the majors, the French and Wimbledon. And most of these uh, long-term events have realized if you can put the women and men together, it's just a great combo. Because as you said, it's a one-stop shop for the fan. They get to see all their stars. They get to see everyone in one fell swoop. And uh, I agree with you. I, I, uh, you know, I think the more meshing of the two tours, the better. And uh, hopefully that will be with Davis Cup and Fed Cup. I mean, isn't it nice we don't have to worry about Davis Cup this week? Uh, so we'll be yeah, exactly. looking forward to that and their virtual you know, uh, reality advertising apparently now that they're going to be using. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, I absolutely agree with you, John. That is definitely the future is putting the men and women together. And they both hold their own. They both have great stars and personalities and youngsters and veterans. And uh, so hopefully that will continue. That was uh, Butch Buckholz's vision when he uh, created the Miami Open. Now all we need are dogs as ball boys. Um, <laughs> ball kids. Uh, yeah. This was you great. saw that tweet, didn't you? Yeah, it was great. Um, all right. The, the NFL guys are, are coming in. I appreciate this. was a great Miami wrap. Um, again, you, you were the eyes and ears uh, when, when I was away. I appreciate that. Well, I thank you for having me on. I always enjoy it. I, Likewise. Well, you, let me tell you, uh, we missed you. <laughs> next year. Next year. The spring break calendars will be different. But, uh, no, this was great. I really appreciate it, and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Terrific. Thanks a lot. All right, thanks to Andrea for uh, visiting with us and giving us her assessments and impressions of the 2019 Miami Open its new home. Thanks to Felix OJ Aliasim for a uh, terrific conversation. I think um, that is um, gives some indication of just why people are, are bullish on his tennis, but also bullish on his, his disposition as well. That uh, is not a conventional 18-year-old that we spoke with. Uh, thanks, as always, to Jamie for her expertise and her producing in our new studio. New equipment, Jamie. People can't see it, but uh, if only they knew what our studio now looks like. Very interesting today. We uh, got through some technical glitches, <laughs> and now we have uh, some fancy new toys to play with. Um, all right, that does it for uh, this week's tennis podcast. We will have another guest next week. As always, keep your suggestions coming. Feel free to uh, rate us on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever your podcasts are sold. Um, have a good week, everyone. We'll do it again next week.